Hi, welcome back to Eight Words or Less. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, eight words or less. Some of you know me already. I'm Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm James. I'm your other host. And this week, Sammy, you've chosen a book by Alan de Botton called The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. And I thought this was a really interesting choice, Sammy. And it's a nice contrast to some of the ones we've looked at recently, uh, which have perhaps been more focused on practical skills amongst others. So what made you choose the book this week? when I started reading this book, I realized we spend so long at work and yet we rarely challenge some of the basic assumptions that we hold, James, behind this time-consuming, life-altering, if you like, activity. I experienced it as a book of philosophy, um, but the author suggests that across these different chapters, we can start to know a little bit more about work and that can help us experience wonder. So yeah, it's right up my street, the philosopher in me, I guess. I think also it's a very useful book to be reading now because the questions that he asks are very relevant. I mean, especially as you say, trying, you know, I think his central question is, you know, when does a job feel meaningful? And to try and answer that, he takes us through 10 almost self-contained case studies. And it was a wonderfully eclectic mixture of uh, roles, responsibilities, jobs that he took us through, you know, ranging from a harbour in the Thames to a logistics factory to a painter who, who focused on painting the same oak tree hundreds of times mm. to a biscuit factory to career counsellor to entrepreneurs to many more. Um, and I think that was very intentional to, to look at this broad range of work. And you know, he ended up answering that question of when the job is meaningful by suggesting that it takes meaning whenever it allows us to either generate delight or reduce suffering in others. And what I thought resonates with me is, you know, as we're going through such challenging times that we are, I actually think people are maybe connecting with that more, that we are discovering mm. more meaning in our jobs. It's a very interesting uh, choice of book. Tell me, Sammy, what is your central message? The central message is actually a hashtag that I've been using for the last couple of years. It is, the future of work is human. My first petal, James, is around good work being vital for human beings. So in one of the chapters, the author shadowed a career counsellor in the south of London, a 55-year-old psychotherapist called Robert Simmons. Uh, Robert would work with unemployed people, those who were about to be made redundant. He'd do work with graduates at career fairs, and occasionally he would do a, a public talk, like a motivational speech. Across his research, he began to realise it's no wonder that there is a productivity gap in our society at work. Uh, the goal of a modern functioning economy is essentially to harness its strength, and we're not particularly good at it. So whilst he was observing Robert, he noticed Robert would get participants to connect with what he called their internalized attitudes, emphasizing any chance of failure in a career, or as I call that, the monkey mind or the negative self-talk. And when he would sit and work with these people, the negative self-talk that they held about themselves and their aspirations at work usually went back to an unhelpful parent or a disapproving teacher, someone who decades before had subjected them to criticism or some kind of neglect. 
he's noticed that one after the other, grown men, grown women, recounted how when they were barely the height of a door handle, they were berated for poor algebra, or it was their sister who was good at art and not them, or they should focus on sport or a certain sport, for example. And we've carried some of that stuff from when we were younger into our working lives, and it's limiting the human potential. Well, I remember, James, I was born in the Middle East and moved to the UK when I was eight. And so the sports I was taught in the Middle East were not the ones that we were learning in England. And we found out from the teacher that we had a double period of games. And I thought that was like Monopoly or charades or something. And actually it was football, it was cricket. And I do remember now thinking of a teacher who laughed at me openly in front of all the other boys and just said, you're, you're useless. And uh, maybe I've carried that, you know, I, I don't enjoy sports in the same way as perhaps other people do. So the, the book started to get me reflecting on when we're younger, the impressions that we create, that we carry through into our careers can mean that we limit ourselves. I also liked how he talked about the close correlation between our choice of occupation and how that helps to define our identity. And he mentioned that one of the most insistent questions we ask when we meet people for the first time isn't where they come from or anything else. It's usually, what do you do? The assumption being that you know the route to who you are as a character is irrevocably linked to what you do as a person. Um, and I thought that was interesting. Absolutely. When I left the corporate world, I knew exactly what I was. I'd had a big title. In fact, the title was so long, Regional Head of Learning, Talent, Resourcing, Organizational Development and Nationalization, <laughs> if you would believe it. It fits onto a business card. Um, the next day after I left the corporate world, I felt really low because I, I realized I had to do some work on not what I was, but who I am. And the author goes into talk, it's never too late to step into this vital work, this good work, if you like. He witnessed a lady who was about to be made redundant and she stood up. She talked about her dream when she was younger to have a tea shop in a village that she'd grown up in. And something along the way had meant that she had detached from that plan. But she had ideas of Shirley Temple, pictures on the wall and the wallpaper. And just before she ended, maybe the author was a bit cynical and she said, I can move mountains. And in that moment, the author's eyes filled up. And I just feel, James, that the constructs of work in 2020 have fallen away. And so when I think about the future of work, I think it can be filled with these incredible moments of realization and reconnection. And I'm not suggesting for everyone it was that something happened as the inner child when you were younger, or, but maybe just spend some time reflecting on, are we yeah. limiting ourselves in some way? And I think you know, one of the things I took away from this chapter was that this is such an important activity that actually we don't give enough attention to. He quotes uh, Abraham Maslow, and says that it isn't normal to know what we want. It is a rare and difficult psychological achievement. And I think the reflection I had on this was actually, how much time do we give to saying, what is our, what, what do we take meaning out of? Where do we want to be? How can we get there? Um, and effectively, it's around career planning, 
But I think a lot of us don't do it very well and we don't give it the level of attention that it deserves. And I thought this was a good chapter to help us reflect on how important that is. And as you say, Sammy, particularly in a world that's changing as fast as this one, uh, we need to make sure we're spending time on, on reconnecting us to what's important and, and how we can uh, plan and manage our careers, how we can improve our learning and, and get new skills to help. So that's why the future of work is human. The second petal, James, is about craving authenticity. This buzzword that I think we've been taught in leadership training programs or we've told to show up this way. Um, But I I sense there's a shift towards real authenticity and I'll explain a little bit more. The author, so de Botin, he spent some time in one of the chapters speaking about shadowing or observing one of the world's largest accountancy firms. And it was funny because stuff that maybe you and I and some of our listeners take for granted of what office buildings or headquarter towers look like, the author doesn't come from that background. So he described it as like a rather alien experience. He called it the glass tower. He noticed that employees would rest their feet on boxes of printer cartridges whilst consuming their lunch and swiveling on ergonomic chairs. Staying up late was almost like a badge of honour. He saw a pizza trolley that would come round at one o'clock in the morning. So there's no judgment there. It was just his observations of a strange and different world, um, which got me thinking. But again, I feel that some of these constructs that we got used to of travelling into metropolises for the headquarters for people to fight for a place in the elevator. Maybe some of those can be revisited in a post-COVID world. Maybe we don't have to all travel in and we don't have to all get on the same tube or train or metro to arrive at the same time. And I think this is the opportunity to shape some of that stuff. Um, He wanted to get an interview with the chairman of a company to understand the business and his aspirations. And James, I'm going to quote, and I'm just going to read out a part of the uh, the chapter. He said, he seems to regard our interview not as a chance to impart useful information, but as a perilous test of his ability to avoid saying anything which might return to haunt him. In other words, to be as boring as possible. He persists in speaking to me in the same congenial but impersonal tone that he might use to address a crowd. I asked him to expound on the company's future. He said, no one is under any illusion that we face some significant challenges. However, there is no doubt in anyone's mind that we also have some fabulous opportunities. So after about 20 minutes of this, James, the author was attempted to ask, when was the last time you were troubled by your bowels in a meeting? (laughs) Just searching for some level of truth or depth. Um, He says perhaps he doesn't speak so much this way in order to keep secrets. Maybe it's something he's just accustomed to after years of headlining conferences. He says maybe it's hollowed out part of his humanity, his personality. And it might have been a decade since the chairman was left alone in a room with nothing to do. And this sentence really resonated with me. I feel my boredom turned to pity for someone who might otherwise imagine had precious little to be pitied for. Sammy, I think it was really interesting this because I completely agree with everything you're saying about the importance of authenticity. But actually, I took a little bit of umbrage around this chapter. I I actually felt that the author was in danger of sort of 
conforming to stereotypes around people who who work in offices and even around chairmen and and perhaps linking too closely management speak with an inauthentic person or someone who needs to be pitied that manager may have had a hundred other priorities on his mind at the time um who knows what his family like or his personal life is like um and i don't think it's necessarily a case to be pitied what i do agree with you completely on is it's so important to make sure that authenticity isn't a buzzword that is something that is a real and actual part of of being a manager of being a colleague and i think that perhaps is also going to be one of the unforeseen benefits of the time that we're going through because at the moment we are all getting greater insight into the home lives of our colleagues uh we see children walking past or we get glimpses into characters that otherwise might be hidden even i just see far fewer uh colleagues wearing ties you know people are a little bit more relaxed about uh joining a vc wearing a t-shirt and i think in a way this might be helping to humanize leaders and our colleagues and may increase that sense of authenticity which has to be a good thing so i really useful stuff coming out of it but i did disagree with some of the observations he made and i think it's important to realize that the stereotypes we see in large offices aren't any more true than they are anywhere else and the number of people who are authentic or inspirational is very similar to to any other walk of life that you would find i think as a leader i can only speak of my own experience i did kind of layer up i masked up and i've been on a journey to become more sammy over the last few years because i don't have to necessarily conform but james i recognize that you and i we partnered on this podcast cuz we're so different you might have seen my video in january on linkedin where i was doing a piece to camera with a lima on my head so i'm recognizing <laughs> that maybe that's too too authentic but what i am noticing on the linkedin feed as i see what's happening with business uh, i notice that people are demanding a little bit more humanity they're looking for messages which perhaps are not so much corporate speak or jargon and i too have noticed that people are coming into their zoom calls with maybe a, an important photograph behind them which they might not have brought into the office building uh, maybe these are things I, that we can revisit i also notice how many people seem to be positioning bookshelves behind their uh, zoom uh, <laughs> zoom meetings which i feel may have been purposefully done but yeah well that's why the future of work is human My third and final petal James is that work in itself has meaning. So the author then went into the world of biscuit making and he wanted to know what happens to meaning in a big organization of 15,000 people. And James, I know you work for an organization of nearly quarter of a million. As human beings, he says we're constantly searching for meaning and meaningfulness. We want to help other people through our work. But the author argues we should be wary of restricting this idea of meaningful work too tightly so it doesn't just mean that we have to save people in the global south or we have to work with an ngo that's beautiful and impactful meaningful work but we don't have to be a doctor or nurse to have meaning through working at a biscuit factory he realized meaning can be helping protect wafers not getting damp or crushed which is critical for us to enjoy a midnight snack or in another profession it could be somebody who's removing a squeak from a door or repatriating an individual with their lost luggage my 75 year old mum 
known as Mumsy, she's always told us that she's a CEO of household affairs. So recognizing that purpose doesn't have to be a big thing, but work in itself does have meaning. And he says it's significant that adults who feature in children's books are rarely, if ever, regional sales managers or building services engineers. They're shopkeepers, they're builders, cooks, or farmers, people whose labor can be easily linked to the betterment of human life. And he wonders, have we distanced ourselves? Have we distanced workers from meaning in the modern world? Yeah. And I also thought what was really interesting when he talked about this was the fact that it's almost an inevitable side effect of driving for productivity. Because as part of that, you are increasing the specialization of work. So as he was talking about, you were talking about the biscuit factory and the very specialist nature of those jobs, that creates a level of distance from the end product and can create this increased sense of alienation and reduce the purpose that people could take from work. And I found this very interesting and quite insightful as well. And it's something that I am aware of working in a large organization because I think the important role of a leader within a large organization is to help remind people of how crucial their work is and the impact that they have on customers and on people. So just taking one example, in a large bank, we obviously have a lot of people who work on making sure payments go through smoothly and on time. And you could look at this as quite a pure processing job. You know, you're sitting in front of a cute computer and clicking a button. But behind every click on that computer, there is a customer, a person who needs to get money to a loved one who might need to make a crucial purchase or who is stuck on holiday and needs to get money to get home. And therefore, the work that you know our colleague is doing, sitting in front of a computer, that might be seen as divorced and quite specialized and away from another individual is actually crucial. And it has that purpose. It is making a big impact onto the, um, onto the end customer. And I think as leaders, it's really important to try and remind and help keep that to the forefront of, of colleagues, whatever their job is. And one of the stories that I heard once, which I love, I don't know, it might be apocryphal, but it was uh, during a visit to the NASA Space Center, apparently in 1962. And President Kennedy noticed a janitor carrying a broom and he interrupted his tour and he walked over to this individual and said, hi, I'm President Kennedy. What are you doing? And this janitor responded saying, well, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. And I I always I don't know if it's true, but I love that story because it is sort of a good way of recognizing that whatever part you're playing within a specialized job within a, a large organization, it is part of this larger mission which you could take and uh, you can take meaning from. I love that. I was lucky enough in my gap year, I worked at Disney World. And so the response to that question was, you know, I create magic. And it sounds naive, but now when we work with leaders, I think in the old days it was called an elevator pitch. But when introducing yourself to somebody, we encourage leaders now to say, what's your name and how are you of service? And that can change depending on which function or which part of the business you're working in. But like, if I'm doing a keynote, I'm Sammy and I'm going to help us explore the impact of culture today. Uh, how are you helpful? And it's another way to connect back to that purpose and meaning. And I think this is so important. In some of the previous podcasts, we've talked about digitalization and the world of tech, the fourth industrial revolution. In the final parts of the book, 
the author goes to the Mojave Desert, uh, where there's an aeroplane graveyard. And he sees this technology, Braniff planes, 747s, which are now being retired en masse because of COVID-19. He saw TWA or Swiss Air, as it was then called. And he noticed these immaculate first-class seats exposed now to the elements, and they were patched up with silver duct tape. How quickly they aged. In the cabins, there were remnants of now obsolete technology, you know, the bulky boxes on the ceilings where those film projectors once hung in the old days. And he goes on to the point of there's something symbolic about aircraft and flight and facing into how quickly jobs can become obsolete in this new world that we live in and how quickly technology can die, basically facing into that. He starts to have this realization that work is a very human experience. We use technology in order for us to have a human experience. And he actually concludes that work is a redemptive activity. And in this complexity of life, work actually offers us the chance to get ourselves right. Yeah, really evocative image and links really nicely to your central message, Sammy, which is the future of work is human. Fantastic, James. Great stuff. Well, well, thank you, Sammy. A really sort of interesting reflection and and very relevant in this time. And uh, thank you to the author, Alan de Botton. And thank you to to everyone who's listening. As always, please do get in touch, uh, share your thoughts and your uh, ideas, any books you would like us to look at. Uh, You can find us at www.8wordsorless or hashtag 8wordsorless and we're on all the usual social media platforms. As always, make sure you subscribe so you have access to all of our future podcasts and next episode, it will be my turn to uh, look at a central message. I will be going back to one of my favorite authors and looking at Matthew Syed's new book, Rebel Ideas. Fantastic. Great stuff. Bye for now.